We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is part 36. And we are up to chapter 10. And uh, the title this morning is Confessing Sins Under the Old and New Covenants. Confessing Sins Under the Old and New Covenants. The text is Hebrews 10. We're going to look at four verses this morning. Hebrews 10, 1. I want to show you a couple of the things I want to, I want to uh, look at as we go through this text together. For since the law has but, and here's one of the things, a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, and this is the next thing I want to look at, make perfect those who draw near. Because if they could, otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? If they accomplished their purpose for good, why keep offering them? Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have, here's the third thing, any consciousness. Is this coming on the screen? Okay, because, you know, any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. The high priest, the holy of holies, annually the sacrifice for the people, for himself and for the people. For for it is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let's pray together. All of our very very best efforts at studying your word, teaching it and hearing it, all of our best efforts, our sharpest efforts, our most successful efforts are useless except aided and covered by your grace and your help. And so come, Holy Spirit, And attend your word as we, your people, study it together. When we're done, may we treasure Christ more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a text that raises uh, really interesting questions. And I think it's good to ask questions of texts like this. Asking questions is uh, very much, I think, what Paul had in mind when he wrote to Timothy, and he said, he said, uh, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, Paul obviously knew Timothy would read his letter. But he's not asking Timothy to read his letter. He's asking him to to think about his letter. And he says he's asking Timothy to think deeply about his letter because apparently God works as readers think. Say that with me. God works as readers think. 
And there's no better way to pull the author's intended meaning from a text than to ask questions of that text. The proof of that, by the way, I think, is right in the text that we're actually studying. Because right in the middle of our text, in verse 2, he says, Otherwise would not they have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Question mark. Note the question mark at the end of that verse. This, this is our writer's way of doing the same thing. This is our writer's way of making his readers do, do more than just read. This is our writer's way of, of drawing out an implication, forcing some kind of application from what his readers are reading. Or, or in Paul's words to Timothy, he's... he's And asking questions, he's making his readers think over what he's saying. Here are some of the questions I want to look at this morning. I have three questions. And they will kind of form the outline of today's today's teaching. Question number one. If the old covenant legal system is just a shadow of the good things to come in Christ, that's what he says in verse 1, does that mean that it had no goodness in and of itself? Those Old Testament laws and sacrifices. And if, and if it didn't have any goodness in itself, then why bother with it? First question. Second question I want to look at. When our writer says the old covenant system made nothing perfect, does that mean that we have reached perfection under the new covenant? That's the second question I want to look at. There's one more. Third question. What does our writer mean by that phrase, consciousness of sins, in verse 2? Do do we still have consciousness of sins in the new covenant? And if we do, what's the difference? That seems like a fair question. Those aren't light, breezy questions. I hope hope they kind of draw us all in. I, I hope they... They help us to kind of probe our treasure in Christ a little bit more deeply. So my plan this morning, I just, it seems important to me that you know that at least I sort of know where we're going. My plan is to work through the verses of our text, but to do it, framing it all around these three questions. So let's start. If the law is just a shadow of the good things to come, does that mean it has no goodness in and of its own? Hebrews 10.1 For since the law was but, it's just but a shadow of the good, the good things are to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the very same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So that word 
shadow. We've looked at it before. Our writers used it before. And I think it was pretty carefully chosen by our writer. True enough, the shadow is not, the shadow is not the object casting the shadow. The shadow is not the object creating the shadow. The shadow isn't the form itself. He uses that word right there. Not the true form. It's, it's just the shadow the form creates. And for most of this letter, you have to see that he's doing something different here. For most of this letter, our writer has been pointing out the dissimilarities, the differences between the shadow of the old covenant system and the true substance of the sacrifice of Christ. That's where he's been going. But there's another side to this shadow illustration. I think it's important to remember that there's at least some positive similarity between the object and the shadow. There's some similarity. Given normal lighting conditions, you won't get a circular shadow from a square object. There's a bit of correspondence. I mean, there's, there's at least some kind of connection between the shadow and the object casting that shadow. And our writer, I think, chose this illustration to, to draw us into making connections. He's not, he's not stringing together pearls. He's forging links with a chain. First of all, take careful note that our writer calls the whole Old Covenant law. That's a bit surprising to me. The whole Old Covenant law, he calls it, a shadow. Not, not just the sacrifices. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, God gave that moral law on Mount Sinai, and this was to define sin, to make it uh, more knowable, more official, given our fallen condition, that law immediately brought about a deep sense of guilt before God. That's what we were just singing about. The chorus didn't really explain it, but hope that was lost. What hope? How did we lose it? Where did it go? That law immediately brought about a deep sense of guilt before God. I mean, that moral law is... It's what awakened the need for the sacrificial law. The two combine under the old covenant. What were people to do when they realized they had broken God's law? How would they avoid a just punishment from a holy God when the wages of sin is death? The answer, well, there would be a death for sin, all right, but it wouldn't be the sinner's own immediate death. They would be commanded to bring a bull or a lamb or a goat, and the animal's blood would be shed, and the actual sinning human being would be treated as though pardoned. Now, now, to the point. 
there anything good in that old covenant law by itself? If it's just a shadow? If there isn't, why bother with it? There was some temporary good in that old covenant shadow. And, and here's, here's the good that God was working through that old covenant legal slash sacrificial system. What God was doing was laying a very rudimentary, basic foundation for understanding that his grace and his mercy were going to be bestowed on sinners through the sacrifice of another. You see it? They wouldn't pay for their own sins. I hate to, I don't want to sound like a broken record. Record. Well, they're coming back, aren't they? I'm okay. Not as out of it as you might think. But this, this beauty in the sacrificial system, this lesson, this teaching, this is what is missed by those who, who only see ugliness in the blood and violence of the old covenant sacrificial system. They miss the the whole point that that this is the deepest and clearest revelation of God's offer of pardoning grace to sinners who could never merit forgiveness in themselves, who would always need someone else to stand in. But there's more. That old covenant shadow was also good. It was also good in the way it retrained our, our all-too-human way of understanding the nature of how God forgives. God was training people never to picture his grace and forgiveness as, as cheap grace and forgiveness. So, so God was showing them divine grace couldn't just fall down from the sky like snow... Divine grace could never be confused with an indifference to sin and wickedness. You'll see this question raised, next week I'm going to deal with it more specifically, but you'll see this question raised in dozens of contemporary writers and theologians from Rob Bell to Brian McLaren to Brian Zahn when they quote and use words, quote, cosmic child abuse, when referring to Christ's sacrifice for sins, the hand of Father God. Quote, Why would God need to sacrifice his son for my sin? Brian's on. Forgiveness shouldn't require payment. When I forgive someone, I don't feel the need to exact payment for the wrong they've done to me. I just forgive. Why can't God? That seems reasonable, doesn't it? I'm amazed at at the lack of understanding of basic issues like this. I'm amazed that I see so few written responses to such obviously weak thinking and heresy. Here's the point. When someone sins against you, you can and you should 
just forgive them with no thought of payment to you for the wrong they've done. We're all agreed on that, aren't we? You just forgive them. Period. That's what you're commanded to do in the scriptures. But there's a reason for this um, wonderful, glorious simplicity in our forgiveness. First, when someone wrongs you, they aren't sinning against you. You're, You're just in the path of their wickedness. They're sinning against God. I get that from the way David was teaching all Israel in his very public worship confession in Psalm 51.4 against... Here, let me show it to you. Against you. Then he has the nerve to say this. Here's the big word. You only... Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? This, is, this, by the way, is David's confession after committing adultery with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah. It's all against God. So the reason you can and you must forgive freely is because, because the heavy lifting, the work and the cost of pardon have already been paid through Christ, God the Son. So the exacting of payment isn't yours to demand, and quite quite the opposite. You and I are to forgive freely on the basis of the atoning work of Christ that we ourselves have received. This is Paul's whole point. He talks about it in Ephesians. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, God in Christ, the cross. So the basis of the freeness of my forgiveness is it's the fruit that grows out of the costliness of the grace I have so graciously received through the sacrifice of Christ. So, so take away the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the freeness of my offer of grace to others, it just falls flat on its face. Let me say it this way. Maybe it's more rememberable. Without God the Son's love-filled sacrifice satisfying justice before the moral throne of the universe, all other offers of forgiveness become empty and immoral. This is just assumed in the scriptures, even when it isn't explicitly stated. There's a reason Jesus can simply tell the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. The reason it all looks so natural and simple isn't to be found just in Jesus' niceness or politeness. Jesus knows he's about to die for that woman's adultery. There's nothing cheap 
or natural about any expression of forgiveness in a sin-filled world, divine or human. It's all cross-centered. I may forgive you without even thinking about the cross. I might be an atheist and forgive you without thinking through the process. But what makes relational forgiveness possible in any sense of the word is is the fact that the justice of God has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We looked at it a few weeks ago. It extends back to the foundation of the world. That's in the Hebrew text. And until the second coming of Jesus. That's in the Hebrew text. That's the engine for all forgiveness. Remember where we are here. I said there were two good things pictured in the shadow of the old covenant law. First, it pointed to the truth that forgiveness would always be established through the sacrifice of another. And second, God was revealing in a very rudimentary fashion that his absolute justice made it impossible for him to forgive sins with no establishing punishment for wrongs committed. So so God's love is revealed as infinitely holy as well as infinitely gracious. If you need one more verse that highlights this, there aren't any better than this one. This death of Jesus, it was to show it was to show his righteousness. I would have put his love, wouldn't you? It was to show his righteousness at the present time. This is long after the cross. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right. So there was good in it, in and of itself. It's a shadow, but it wasn't valueless. Point number two. Question number two. When our writer says the old covenant system made nothing perfect, does that mean we've reached perfection under the new covenant? Because he seems to be making that kind of contrast. He says, verse 1 and then verses 3 and 4, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, here, here it is, make perfect those who draw near. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I'm not sure very many of us would be comfortable coming up onto the platform saying, Pastor Don, give me the mic just for a second. And then stand here and say, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know I've reached a milestone. Just in the last little while, you know, I've been reading my Bible and devotions, and I've even started to come to church Sunday night. And I think, I think, viewing everything just objectively, I have finally, I just want you to know, attained a state 
of absolute spiritual perfection. What would you say to a person like that? Well, first, you want to arrange help for the individual. And we'd have good scriptural reason for questioning that kind of claim. Actually, the New Testament tells us when such a claim will be feasible. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, this is Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him. Blessed hope, this. All the talk about heaven and streets of gold and mansions and some stuff that's kind of biblical and some stuff that we've just manufactured. But of all the blessed hopes, this one gets overlooked. Just, just for, for all who are trying to follow Christ, who are growing sick of their remaining sin, I feel that all the time. All who constantly feel the downward pull of this empty world. For everyone in this room who can relate to the words of that hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's no sense to it. Blessed hope that there's a wonderful day coming when my, my deepest love for my Lord will finally be, will finally be the only manifestation of my true self. But while that's a wonderful hope, it does make this text hard to understand, if you see what I mean. Look at it again. Keep those words from John in mind and look at this again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So, so the question... I want to ask this text is, what's the point of reminding our text Jewish readers, that's the people to whom our writer is writing, what's the point in reminding them that their old covenant system couldn't make them perfect when these new covenant Christians knew they still weren't perfect even under the new covenant? What, what good is this? Christians need to know how to answer that question. There's a different kind of perfection being described in this Hebrews text. And, and when you think it all the way through, you'll immediately see the difference between these two covenants. Here's the point. Our writer is describing the atonement of Christ in in deeper terms than we're used to thinking about it. Our writer is describing the finished, final 
sacrifice in Christ. The object, not the shadow. The actual reality of Christ's death on the cross. He's describing it in much deeper terms than just forgiveness. And I am very used to just thinking of forgiveness when I think of that cross. And the writer's trying to help me. You see, my sins aren't just the things I do. That's certainly a part of it. My sinful self is is who I am. I I don't just need forgiveness for my past sins. I do need that. But that's not all I need. I need need actual righteousness before the throne of a holy God. I, I am a covenant breaker who needs an actual covenant faithfulness before God. And here's the problem. There's no bull or goat or lamb, who died in any of those sacrifices as a perfectly obedient covenant keeper before God. Not one of them. I I don't mean to sound irreverent, but there's not a bull or a goat or a lamb that was sacrificed that cared beans about the law of God. Right? They didn't care beans about the law of God. Not one of those animals ever bled to death knowing there was such a thing as an old covenant or a new covenant. And and the point of our text is these animals are helpless to provide me with any kind of display of covenant righteousness and faithfulness and perfection. But But there was a sacrifice coming. There had been divine promises... There was a rumbling of something coming. There was one who would be, in in highly significant covenant words, Paul would describe one who was going to be born of a woman, born under the law. So Paul, and the writer of our Hebrews text, he specifically relates the, the life and death of Christ, not just to forgiveness... Pardon, but the law, the covenant. So this final sacrifice is offered through the blood of Christ who who kept the law of God perfectly. Inwardly, outwardly. And that's the sacrifice I stand in. This is what the hymn writer meant in those blessed words that we don't sing often enough. You know, go sing with me. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. There it is. See, a goat can't do that for you. A bull can't do that for you. They made nothing perfect. Christ is different. Christ died as a faithful covenant keeper in my place. All right. The third question. What does our writer mean by that phrase, consciousness of sins? 
verse 2. Do we still have a consciousness of sins in the new covenant? And if we do, what's the difference? I'm going to look at the answer specifically in verse 2, but I just want to go back to verse 1 and back up and get a running start into it, all right? Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, we looked at that, those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? I want to tell you why I think that's a tricky passage. It's a really tricky passage because I know these verses in 1 John. It's the clear teaching of the whole New Testament that I, as a follower of Jesus, am still fully and painfully aware when I sin. In 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his, and his word is not in us. So here's what I get from John. Clearly, we, we know when we've sinned. Agreed? Usually. Usually we know. Sometimes there are sins of omission. Sometimes you grow careless and you start to justify things. I'm talking about an, under the normal state of affairs, we are usually conscious sinners. In fact, the real curse of sin is the way we become liars. He says in verse 8, we become liars if we even pretend that we're innocent when we've sinned. So in this sense, we're exactly like David in Psalm 51. Saints in all ages find the closer they get to God, the more they become aware of their own wickedness and, and the pervasiveness of, of wrong attitudes, selfishness, pride, the desire to win every argument. So what then can our writer in Hebrews mean when he says there's a difference in consciousness of sin under the old covenant, under the new? And I think the key point of understanding is our Hebrews text isn't meaning awareness of sin when it speaks of consciousness of sins. It means consciousness of sins in the sense of fear of judgment. 
because those sins were repeated over and over again, and because the only sacrifice offered was the blood of animals, those sinners were made painfully aware of the weakness of all those sacrifices. They, they had limited ability to look clearly at the one who fulfilled every detail of the law in absolute perfection. They had very limited ability to grasp the incredible beauty of God the Son, God himself, dying in their place, bearing their judgment. Think about it. When we have the blessed opportunity to study the Gospels, when we see the absolute sinless perfection, not just the vicarious death, the vicarious humanity of our Lord. And then when we see him dying on the cross, that symbol, the cross of being cursed and sinful, we are forced to ask this question. If not his own, then for whose sin is this spotless Redeemer dying? If not, if not his own, whose punishment is he bearing? Whose justice is he satisfying? This is the root of New Testament confidence. This is the deepest source of our hope and our joy. We, we still need to be painfully aware of our sins. But we confess them in deep repentance and full confidence. Let us draw near with full assurance. Confidence in our time of need. What do you need? Well, we need forgiveness. We fear judgment. No. No, you can have confidence. You can have confidence. We confess sins in deep repentance, full confidence in the spotless high priest, the man, Christ Jesus, at the right hand of the Father in perfect righteousness. There's enough to think about in this hard text to keep you singing for the rest of your life. 